Greetings to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it's been a few days since I was on the air last, but I'm glad to be back on the air again. And I've got a um, good treat for you all in this uh, particular episode of Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. I'm sure some of you all are wondering, well, what makes this different compared to the um, other episodes? Well, we're going to begin a two-part series by discussing uh, the Long Retreat, or rather, a circle of fire, the Long Retreat. So, this is part one to what I just described a moment ago, being Circle of Fire, the Long Retreat. You know, usually when we think of uh, soldiers retreating, we often like to think of it as being a peaceful retreat. But history has often told us that there have been many instances where retreats have gone horribly wrong, where retreat has met in disaster, where soldiers are running for their lives without any proper order to where they don't know where their end to where the end will be. In other words, they are running but they aren't but they don't know where their final destination of uh, safety is. So when I think of circle of fire, I think of circle a circle or multiple circles that have hazards. And I'm not talking just fire, but fire in the sense of danger. That, hey, you know, just because we're walking, we're marching somewhere, it doesn't mean that um, that we're in, that we're out of harm's way. And from what I discussed in the previous two podcasts, I think that should have uh, made it clear that no matter what direction the British, uh, the British uh, brigades or regulars, I should say, tried to um, regroup, they were hit from all different corners. So we have to wonder, okay, when does this fighting end on April 19, 1775? But how are the British going to be able to return back to Boston with as little um, damage possible? You know, from Concord to Boston, each way is 20 miles. So, given that, you know, we've got a 20-mile terrain to take into consideration, there's no guarantee that maybe, that just maybe, that the British won't be out of harm's way still. So, in order to understand how the retreat comes into uh, play, we need to learn about the origins of April 19th, 1775, in regards to the breakdown in uh, communication within the British network system. For starters, we already know that the communication was from top to bottom. And while, yes, having an inner circle group of officers as being your most trusted advisors, while that is a good thing, I think we will be shocked to find out that sometimes this inner circle isn't always an effective method for relaying information. So, let's, di- let's get down to business, and um, let's find out what the first question to Circle of Fire, the Long Retreat Part 1, will be required of you all to uh, find out, answer-wise. Did British General Thomas Gage have a good outlook towards the Concord expedition prior to troops departing Boston? 
do or do any of you all out there think it, that he that he felt good or that he didn't? The answer is no. And this was greatly attributed to the breakdown in the British communication system, which once again focused heavily from within the inner circle, I should say from top to bottom. But this also included General Gage's consistent obsession involving secrecy. Could it be possible, perhaps, that General Gage was afraid that if communications left the inner circle and were passed, um, sensitive information got passed to lower-ranking uh, status members of the British military, is it possible that perhaps one or two members from a lower-tier status could defect by sharing sensitive information to the outside, being the Whigs, Patriots? It is possible. After all, we, we still can't confirm if this is 100% true or not, but many historians do believe, as I shared from a previous podcast, that uh, General Gage's wife, Margaret Kemble Gage, was the one that... Um, that shared uh, classified information with Dr. Joseph Warren as to the mission itself where the British were going, being that of Concord to seize munitions. And this greatly upset General Gage to the point where he um, had his wife sent back to England. So it's one thing to... um, keep the inner network intact. It's another thing to only want to share information with a select few that you personally feel that you can trust, given if you're general gauge. The only problem is that secrecy can only go but so far. Secrecy, the secrecy issue, became a larger matter. How did it become a larger matter? Okay, It became a bigger matter over a sealed letter containing instructions for an officer named uh, Lord Hugh Percy. I know whenever you hear of a British um, person whose first name is, um, his first name may not be Lord, but if his title is that of Lord, you know that he comes from a very, very prestigious family, you know that he comes from probably the wealthiest 1-2% to 2% of English society. But his name is Lord Hugh Percy. The letter contained instructions for Percy and his troops, or rather, for Percy and the troops under his command regarding the march from Boston to Concord. Okay, well, if the secrecy is such a large matter here, did the letter ever get to Hugh Percy? Let's find out. Well, whom did General Gage address the classified sealed letter to? And was the intended receiver present when the letter arrived at his quarters? Okay. The answer to... um, Part one, being um, whom did General Gage address the classified, classified sealed letter to? That was to Brigadier Major Captain Thomas Moncrief. 
And as for uh, the part two answer, Captain Moncrief was not found at his quarters, meaning his uh, place of dwelling. He wasn't found at his uh, quarters when the document arrived. Okay? If he wasn't there when this document arrived, whom had access to the letter? The letter was left with a servant of Thomas, of Brigadier Major Captain Thomas Moncrief's. The servant put it on his, a table of his, but yet he failed to notify Moncrief about this. Okay, what does this tell you? What should this tell us right away now, folks? There is a breakdown in communication. Is it a 101 breakdown or something that goes beyond 101. Well, if you asked me, I would say this incident, if, if I had to rate it between 1 being minor and 5 being bad, I'm going to put it, I'm going to have to put it between a 4 and a 5. You know, if, we're, if I'm not mistaken, what did the um, Patriot forces do to go about mobilizing communication. Well, for starters, we know that the uh, their networking, their system of networking went from bottom to top. We also know that there was never really a true commander in charge, although some would like to probably believe that Paul Revere deserved that title. And if there, and if there are those who feel that he should, then it's not my place to tell them differently. On the other hand, though, the networking system in Boston, or rather in Massachusetts, was was successful given that it was from bottom to top because everyone had an equal opportunity to participate in the um, process with going about gathering information. Um, all information shared and uh, brought to the attention of uh, key leaders like Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, and Samuel Adams. Any information that was brought to them, it was uh, valued you know, there was no uh, bickering or partisanship saying, well, I don't think John Smith's information is really relevant, but I like what Tom Jones had to say, so I'm just going to leave John Smith out, out to dry. No, that's not how um, communication networking um, uh, worked in Massachusetts, because if it had been that way, then they would have had the same issues just like, um, just like we're realizing now, with breakdown and uh, within the British communication system. So, um, Captain Moncrief, eventually, re when he returns to his quarters, he didn't appear very alert. Obviously, if he wasn't alert, then I think it's fair to say that he was very tired from whatever he had been doing um, earlier. So, he goes straight to bed without learning about this letter. However, by 4 a.m. on April 19th of 1775, Captain Moncrief, he is sleeping sound while, while Lord Percy's brigade remained in the barracks. You know, I don't know what uh, General Thomas Gage is thinking, but to me, his communication system is one that also revolves around living in the moment. In other words, there never really was a true solid alternative plan B option for General Gage. He didn't even, he didn't think about developing one. 
Maybe because he thought that all it would take is one skirmish or one um, profound act of um, a profound uh, act of um, a profound resolution, perhaps something that would have uh, put an end to everything. But what General Gage didn't realize is that the only way was that by failing to um, mobilize a broader network of communication within his system, they might have been able to have uh, thwarted um, further rebel um, networking um, plots. They might have been able to have done more in terms of uh, diffusing further um, problems that ended up um, benefiting uh, the patriots more so than the uh, loyalists or those fighting for the king. So wouldn't it be fair to say that um, that General Thomas Gage should have uh, sent um, other what we call dispatchers, that is dispatchers serving not only just General Gage, but loyalties to king and country where these dispatchers could have um, perhaps... Um, given information to um, loyalists in Cambridge because there, there was a good part of Cambridge that often got referred to as uh, Tory Row. Think about this. I mean, it's one thing to be loyal to king and country, but if, but if you're um, within the British military, yes, you can value um, people who are loyal to the crown, but if you don't give them an opportunity to participate in further activities then how can you uh, go about effectively developing um, long-term alliances um, between the greater community, especially the community that, um, that has strong um, allegiances to the crown? So by 6 a.m. on April 19, 1775, Captain Moncrief finally gets awakened from his chambers, and at the same time, Lord Percy's brigade is ordered has been ordered to assemble in a marching in marching order by 7 a.m. That was when the act of official assembling began. So you think about this now, folks. Three hours have been lost. Maybe more than three hours. I think it's fair to say that we might come to the grim realization here for the British that that they have lost so much time that when you lose precious time, the harder it becomes to mobilize your troops to get them ready to get to their destination. And I believe it is very fair to say that perhaps um, not only is Lord Hugh Percy's um, brigade in a state of disarray over what they are supposed to and not supposed to do, but other brigades are now feeling the impact because of the lost time. But not just lost time, but how about the delay in communications? As I said before earlier, I could say it again. If you had backup letters that you could give to other people, you wouldn't be in this bind. Don't assume that everything will work out when you send one sealed letter to the person who's supposed to get it. That's why you need a plan B option. And yes, wouldn't you think of notifying someone ahead of time? But look, if you're Th General Thomas Gage, Thomas Gage doesn't want a war, but yet at the same time, he's in denial. He can't handle the fact that 
that war is inevitable. And what he can't handle the fact is knowing that there are so many people coming from all different directions. The mosquitoes, the mosquitoes ready to put up a fight with the elephant that represents the mightiest empire in the world. The mosquitoes, to me, have the better communication because they're, they're coming not just so much from all angles, but they're all unified. They all know the inner workings of their communities. They know where to um, send troops to, to conduct surprise attacks on the British. They know where to retreat. They know how to um, regroup. They know how to do, it seems like they know how to do everything. And while, yes, they may not have the best dress, they may not be the best dressed of men, I've said, and I will say this again too, even though they may not be the best dressed of men, they do know how to uh, conduct themselves by, by uh, cleaning their muskets and rifles, to assembling them, to firing them, reloading. They know how to do the whole nine yards. How so? Well, many of these people have probably, um, they've grown up with muskets and rifles all their lives, but they've fought, and many of them fought in the previous war, the French and Indian War, and generations before them had fought in three other wars. Maybe not all three, but had fought in at least one of those wars. But of course, things are different now. England's not on their side, but they don't want England to be on their side, and we, and we know all the reasons for that. So if this communication breakdown involving Thomas Moncrief is bad enough, did another one, did another breakdown in communication take place after 7 a.m. on April 19, 1775? Believe it or not, folks, yes. At 7.30 a.m., Lord Percy's brigade was finally ready to march, except for the British Marines, whom remained absent. General Gage's secret orders for the Marines got placed in another sealed letter addressed to Battalion Commander Major John Pitcairn, whom was already at Lexington Green. The orders re remained in his room. Okay, did anybody bother to think, hey, what time would um, Major John Pitcairn be leaving to take his troops to Lexington. See, nobody it wasn't so much a question that nobody bothered to ask, but it's because the, the inner circle workings were so small that General Thomas Gage was a victim of his own obsessions. He was a victim of his, um, of his principles. He, need he failed to reinvent the system. You know, the, sometimes systems need reinventing in order to survive in the present, um, in order to survive in present day society. Well, General Gage's system of communication is outdated. And it's not just been outdated within a year's time. I would say it's been outdated since the French and Indian War ended. So, while um, Major... John Pitcairn is in uh, is at Lexington Green, and we already know that the orders or instructions in this sealed letter remain in his room. There are now back-to-back -back failures with communication. These back-to-back -back failures have pretty much delayed brigades assembling 
How long would you say that these breakdowns in communication delayed the brigade's ability to assemble? Less than five hours or close to five hours? How about close to five hours? This breakdown of communication also could have meant the difference between life and death for many British soldiers. Okay? There's already a good number of British soldiers at Lexington who will eventually make, make their way to Concord. But, of course, they don't know about Concord just yet. So now we're going to discuss about a man named uh, Lord Hugh Percy. I've mentioned his name, and I'm sure many of you all are probably itching to know exactly who is this man and why is he so vital for the British. Well, let me ask you this. Was Lord Hugh Percy considered to be one of the more abler officers in General Gage's army? Yes. He is he how do we know this? Because he will become a figure of high importance for multiple reasons. I thought Colonel Francis Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith had been a savior, and he was. He was a savior at Lexington by um by getting um several British regiments back into line after um soldiers began firing on the militiamen without any proper uh, command to do so. But let's find out. We're going to learn a lot about Lord Hugh Percy. It won't be, we won't be able to cover everything in this podcast. But what I can tell you about Lord Hugh Percy will really um, intrigue you all. So, let's be prepared to find out. Well, as I said earlier, when someone in England has the title of Lord like, say, Lord John Smith, for example, that should tell us right there that John Smith comes from a very, very prestigious and well-to-do family, perhaps a family that is one of aristocrats, a family that falls into the elite 1% to 2% of English society. Perhaps, I'll tell you here in a moment, perhaps um, a family who falls under the lordship title is one that is only comprised of a small number of families in English society. Probably well less than 500 at best. Now, what I do know is that in, in Parliament, not to get off track here, but I am going to just reference it here very briefly, there are two bodies in Parliament, just like there are in Congress. In Parliament, you have the House of Commons, which is like the equivalent to the United States as House of Representatives, And the upper house in Parliament is known as the House of Lords, which is like the equivalent of the United States Senate. The House of Lords basically is... um, Those who serve in the House of Lords are are not... um, It's like a lordship, basically. These are people who who are in the high ranks of uh, British society who serve in, the, in, in that uh, chamber. But what I do know about Lord Percy is this. He was the eldest son of the Duke of Northumberland. 
If those of you are wondering how North Umber Northumberland is spelled, it's N-O-R-T-H-U-M-B-E-R-L-A-N-D. I'm familiar with Northumberland because there is a uh, county up in uh, Virginia's northern neck. It's not too terribly far from uh, where I live. It's, um, the county is called Northumberland County. And of course, what do you know? In, in England, there is um, a place called Northumberland. Well, Lord Percy, being the eldest son of the Duke of Northumberland, he became the sole heir to one of the greatest estates in England. Well, let me, let me ask you all this question. In 1775, how many people are living in England? It's, was it 5 million, 7 million, or 10 million? How about 5 million? Okay, and now here's another question for you all. In 1775, the English aristocracy, was the English aristocracy population at more than 1% or less than 1% in a nation consisting of 5 million people? The answer is fewer than 1%, or we should say less than a percent. And believe it or not, Fewer than 1% in 1775 was about 190 people. So, yes, Lord Percy in 1775 would be uh, classified as being in the um, perhaps the wealthiest 1% of English society, being in the true upper class. Now, Lord Percy, Lord Hugh Percy, rather, I should say, before earning his present title of lordship, at age 19 he had become a lieutenant colonel, and by, and by age 23 he had become an aide-de-camp to King George III. So it's fair to say that his becoming a lord was just not handed to him overnight. He had to work for it. When does he come to Boston? Does he come to Boston in 1773, 1770, or 1774? He comes in 1774. Well, isn't that the same year that uh, General Thomas Gage came to Boston to, um, came to um, try wholeheartedly to restore peace? Yes, he did. So... Hugh Percy comes to Boston as colonel of his own regiment, being the fifth foot. Well, let's find out some other interesting stuff on Lord Hugh Percy. Did Hugh Percy come to America with a strong sense of sympathy towards the colonists? What do you all think? I know it's easy to think that... The, Everyone in England is against the colonists. Everyone in England wants to tax the col. Everyone in England is in favor of, of uh, taxing the colonists without their consent. Everyone in England is in favor of um, of um, seeing to it that British uh, troops get quartered in people's homes. Well, I can tell you all this right now that there were many people in England who did not like um, how Parliament had abused its powers 
in passing legislation that um, did not involve proper consent among its subjects, being the colonies. And of course, when I think of um, great statesmen who um, who were in fierce opposition to um, passing legislation without direct consent from the colonists, I tend to think of men like William Pitt. I think of other men like John Wilkes and Isaac Barry, for whom Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania, is named after. After all, it was those two men who um, coined the term Sons of Liberty, which um, originated in New York City. And, um, of course, men like Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and Dr. Joseph Warren were all a part of that organization. So, as for Lord Hugh Percy, did he have a strong sense of sympathy towards the colonists? Believe it or not, he did. Like other aristocrats in 18th century England, he too was an ardent Whig. And he had gone as far himself as voting against the Stamp Act. Okay? So if he has voted against the Stamp Act... Could it be fair to say that maybe Lord Percy would have also been against the Townshend duties, which placed um, uh, taxes on lead, glass, paper, um, and that, and most notably the tea? Sure, it, I think it's possible. Uh, David Hackett Fisher did not specifically mention if he had opposed the Townshend duties, but I do believe that if if someone like Lord, like Hugh Percy or William Pitt or uh, John Wilkes, Isaac Barry, if they do not uh, support the Stamp Act, I think it would be fair to say that they would not have supported other uh, measures like the Townshend duties to the uh, Quartering Act. But I also know this, that uh, Lord Hugh Percy, he went as far as not also not wanting to have any desire to fight Americans. In other words, he sympathizes with the colonists, over improper, um, over what we call improper and unfair practices, most notably the taxation without representation. But he doesn't believe that war itself should um, be a resort. And I do believe it's fair to say that he, along with a handful of other um, men in England, hope that, for one, war would be avoided, but two, that there can be uh, resolutions that would uh, resort to um, preventing further um, escalation. Well, when Parliament did repeal the Stamp Act, of course that was a victory for the colonists, but as we all know, another piece of legislation uh, was passed, being the Townshend duties, that also led to more uproar. Um, I know I might be retracing some things that I mentioned from previous podcasts, but we also should remember where Lord Hugh Percy is coming from, because he himself has a story to tell, just like our other characters, being Paul Revere, Thomas Gage, and even the everyday um, men whom have made sacrifices, most notably on this day of April 19, 1775, who are putting their lives on the line so that future generations can live in freedom. So, Here's a, another important question we ought to think about. Did Lord Hugh Percy's mind change about Americans? In other words, he already has sympathy towards the Americans, 
But will his level of sympathy remain the same or change once arriving into Boston come 1774? I would be shocked if his, um, if his mind towards um, New Englanders was a positive one. Well, it turns out that his, um, that his uh, stance towards um, Americans, most notably the New Englanders, given that he arrives to Boston, um, changes drastically for the worse. His overall outlook towards these people was characterized by having little to no regards. Why so? Well, he doesn't like their overall state of behavior. For starters, Percy was appalled by how much improper behavior took place amongst the unruly crowds, a.k.a. mob. Remember, I'm not talking organized crime here. In uh, colonial times, remember folks, a mob was referred to as an unruly crowd, People who were like a bunch of renegades, outlaws, people who didn't have any boundaries on, on how to control their anger when something didn't go to their satisfaction or liking. So, Percy, he's already appalled by their improper behavior when it comes to unruly crowds uh, taking matters into their own hands. And what I mean by that is how about assaulting people whose loyalties were to king and country, along with tarring and feathering them. Yeah, I mean, all in the name of, of loyalties, folks, or allegiances. How about the disruption of daily duty functions assigned to people like customs collectors? Now, of course, Percy arrives in 1774, but what happened in December of 1773? the Boston Tea Party incident, where over 300 chests of East India tea got dumped into the Charlestown River. That sent shockwaves through the British Empire, and, of course, that ultimately led to what we call the Intolerable or Coercive Acts of 1774, which um, led to the uh, port closure of Boston, relocating it north to Salem, and all offenses committed in the colonies would, would now have, those people would be sent over to England, or rather deported to England to be tried for those offenses. So, yes, disrupting the daily duty functions of uh, British agents is something that he finds um, unnecessary and absurd because Perhaps these agents aren't the ones causing the problems. They're just doing their job because the, they were appointed to do so by the king. Well, and of course we all know that the, that the uh, customs collectors, uh, some of them, their homes were uh, vandalized, and perhaps a couple of them, I do believe, uh, experienced being assaulted, to being tarred and feathered. So, yes, um, it's not a good time to be in Boston, especially if you're if you're if you've been sent from England, or even if you live in Boston, but you are, but you are loyal to the crown. But we also know that uh, another thing that um, that really upsets um, Hugh Percy is the is um, these uh, unruly crowds vandalizing uh, loyalist owners' business shops. How about um, also harassing British troops, the, the, the presence of British troops in and around greater Boston? So no matter where one's loyalties go, 
it seems like trouble is always there for, for the fuel itself to be fired. And that's what really upsets Hugh Percy about these New Englanders, that he feels that they don't really have any sense of values. But at the same time, we also should be reminded that, uh, you know, just because someone dresses differently and may not be from the upper class of society, it doesn't mean that we should also judge them for who they are. And when I'm on the air again next, um, that part will come into play. But right now, Hugh Percy doesn't really have a lot of regards for New Englanders. He may not be the, he won't be the first, and he's probably not going to be the last to, um, to um, think that. Now, at 8.45 a.m. on April the 19th of 1775, that became the official time for which the first of Lord Percy's brigades began their official march from Boston to the unknown final destination being conquered. So, there again, folks, five hours went by, five hours of bad breakdown of communication, five hours um, squandered, all because letters were sent to commanders, but the commanders were, in the case of Major Pitcairn, he was already at Lexington Green. Um, Captain Moncrief was uh, asleep, uh, trying to get you know caught up with his sleep, but nobody bothered to mention him about a, a classified letter. And there again, that's all attributed to an ineffective, outdated um, communication networking system. All because General Thomas Gage is so obsessed with secrecy. Did any New England civilians whom remained loyal to the crown travel alongside brigades commanded by Lord Percy? Believe it or not, folks, yes. There were a handful of American Tories whom traveled alongside the British brigades led by Lord Percy. And these American Tories were, were, uh, were badly wanting desperation. Well, how do I put it this way? They were, desper- they were desperate for revenge against all rebels, a.k.a. Whigs, whom had tormented them ruthlessly. Remember this, uh, this war. I mean, it's not a full-scale war just yet, but what, we've, but what we can already say to ourselves is that what has already taken place now at Concord has expanded beyond what took place at Lexington, which was just the 101 um, origins. Okay, the shots were heard round the world at Lexington, but there have been multiple shots heard round the world at Concord. And it is fair to say that um, Whigs and Tories, or I should say Patriots, Loyalists, their mentality really is one that, to an extent, is very similar to the, the Old Testament and the Bible. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're going to hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Um, there was no uh, middle of the road. And I do believe it is fair to say that General Thomas Gage so badly wanted to be the middle of the road where he could help make compromises between um, the presence of British troops in Boston as well as the people of Boston. The problem, though, for General Thomas Gage is that he didn't really understand just how deep 
the problem was. He didn't understand just how um, he didn't understand the um, value. He didn't understand the lifestyle and the culture of New England. No wonder he was so um, adamant on wanting to close town hall meetings. No wonder he was so adamant on enforcing the uh, coercive acts. No wonder he was so adamant on ensuring that anyone who committed crimes in Massachusetts got sent to England for their offenses. So, Lord Percy, how did he learn about the road to Lexington? Well, okay, we don't have GPS systems, so he's got to find out from somebody, a person. He found out about the road to Lexington through a man named Isaac Smith. Is Isaac Smith an ordinary person? Uh, He could be. He could be an everyday ordinary person, but what makes him all the more unique? He was a tutor from a previous, uh, from not from a previous, pardon me, from a prestigious college in Massachusetts that still remains very, very prestigious to this day. How about Harvard University? Isaac Smith was a Harvard tutor. Smith wasn't aiding or abetting. In other words, he wasn't aiding Lord Percy. But he accidentally gave away some information that maybe he shouldn't have been giving to the enemy. Of course, I think it would be fair to say, though, that most people would know that if, that if the um, British were in their fine attire, most notably uh, redcoats, that they were representing the British. That's what I'd like to believe, but of course I wasn't alive then, so I have no way of knowing how, um, how the brigades, how all those brigades would have been dressed. That's not to say that many of them would have been in uh, red coat attire. As for Isaac Smith, though, his actions left bad feelings amongst many people in Cambridge. Of course, that's where Harvard was and still remains located today. These bad feelings amongst many people um, led Isaac Smith to uh, take shelter um, elsewhere for, for an unidentified period of time. It's like that old saying with those Southwest Airlines commercials, want to get away for a while. I think that probably would have needed to have applied for Isaac Smith. Hey, he didn't mean to do it intentionally, but when you have a lot of people who are upset at you for sharing, for revealing a secret to the enemy, yeah, I think you would want to get away for a while until the air cleared. Did um, Lord Percy, let's uh, think about this right here, did Lord Percy express the same state of disbelief as Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith had done so when the British troops began firing upon Lexington militia without being given any proper orders for um, aiming and firing. Yes. Yes, Lord Percy uh, was in a true state of disbelief like Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith. And yes, thank goodness that Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith had gone out and defused the situation. But the bigger problem wasn't, the problem wasn't so much that the shots were fired, but how about breakdown in discipline amongst the majority of the soldiers? Yeah, when you have a breakdown in discipline, 
it is going to be hard to restore order. And even if you're not a part of someone else's brigade, we already found out from a previous podcast that only like fewer than 10 men actually listened to um, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith's um, orders. So breakdown of communication, we're already learning here, not only applied to just the um, inner networkings of Lord of um, General Gage's um, ranks of um, commanders below him, but we're also learning that these um, breakdowns in uh, communication were also impacting the soldiers, especially knowing that they decided to fire without giving any proper um, consent from above. Now, given, um, so now we're going to focus on the present now, okay? So we've gone from talking about the about earlier in the morning, how the communication broke down. Now we've got to focus our attention on the present. So we're going to probably say we're looking at early to mid-afternoon now of April 19th, 1775. How many men will be under Lord Percy's command by the afternoon? Is it 1,500 2,000 or between or 1,800 to 1,900? The answer is 1,800 to 1,900, but close enough to 2,000. So, given that Lord Percy has 1,800 to 1,900 men under his command, how will he go about coordinating the return to Boston from Lexington? All right, we've already left Concord, and remember Lexington and Concord are five miles apart. So, if Le- is, so from Concord to Boston, each way is 20 miles. How many miles then is it from Lexington to Boston at this time? About 15 miles each way. So we've covered five miles if you're on the British side, but you're not out of the neck of the woods just yet. And if you want to get into the fraction detail of it all, how about um, you've got 25% of this um, journey return covered, but you've still got 75% more to go. So how will he go about coordinating the return to Boston from Lexington? Percy himself went about distributing his forces into three columns, which included a strong advancing party, as well as having a solid rear guard. The advancing party would be at the front. The rear guard would be on the left and right sides. Which would help protect, which would possibly help prevent an ambush coming from opposite sides. This was seen as the equivalent to a mobile square whose columns could shift gears at any moment's notice. Hey, it's a clever strategy. You've got to be creative now. Remember, we can't just be out here in an open, we can't, not everybody can be marching in the same lines. You've got to have protection from your, um, from, from an angle, how about like the blind side? Think about like your blind side on the cars. You know, you've got to look at your blind side to see what's coming at you. While, while Lord Percy was reorganizing his forces, the American commanders were also busy with their own matters. But which American officer would take region, would take reign of command at Lexington? His name is... Um, William Heath, he was a Massachusetts militia general brigadier. 
He's probably not somebody that would come to your all's mind right away, but I can tell you this much. William Heath is a very, very bright man. By the time 1775 comes around, he's not just 40 years old yet, but he is about the age of 38. I read where he was born in 1737. That means he would have been five years younger than George Washington, two years younger than um, John Adams and Paul Revere. William Heath is a well-to-do farmer from Roxbury. Roxbury happens to also be the same town where Dr. Joseph Warren hails from. I wonder if uh, William Heath and Joseph Warren know each other. Well, I think we might find that out. If not tonight, we could possibly find that out in the next podcast. As for William Heath, he is an officer of opposites. Of course, when we think of opposites, a lot of times it's easy to think that it's all bad. We're actually going to find out that this is actually, for one, unique, and two, it's not all for the bad. Okay? I'm going to prove it to you all. William Heath, for starters, had never been in, he had never seen actual combat, and he had never commanded a large force in the field. Okay, I'm sure many of you all are thinking, okay, how can this guy be the militia general brigadier who's going to be taking the reign of command at Lexington when he has never been in a battle and he has never commanded before? But what does he have to make up for it? I mean, he's got to find something that, to compensate for not being able to command on the battlefield or even fought. Five years earlier, in 1770, which was the same year as the Boston Massacre took place, William Heath becomes convinced that New Englanders would be forced into fighting as a means for protecting their livelihood, a.k.a. ways of life. In other words, he knew that it was just a matter of time before war itself between uh, the people of Massachusetts and England would take place. But he firmly did believe that the only way to be prepared for it was to, um, was to take whatever necessary means of preparation required. In other words, how about, as I mentioned from an earlier podcast, about how um, militia companies were required to um, train at least four times or more a year. It often involved their being in um, drill training two to three days a week. They did this because they never knew at any moment's notice when they would be asked to um, asked to um, take on the call of duty. It's also worth pointing out that William Heath was a frequent visitor to Henry Knox's bookstore in Boston. Henry Knox will be a vital figure in the American Revolutionary War. He will become one of George Washington's most uh, trusted advisors. Henry Knox's bookstore, it wasn't Barnes & Noble, folks. It was a bookstore that, um, it might have, uh, who knows what Knox's bookstore might have had, it, but his bookstore had a lot of uh, stuff on uh, military-related uh, matters. So that's why uh, William Heath became a frequent visitor to his bookstore. He acquired his knowledge where he was able to acquire a vast knowledge of um, information on military subjects. During the daytime, 
he would study British regulars at their drill on the common, meaning in uh, Lexington. You know, he basically just would go out as an ordinary citizen from a distance, but he would watch how the how uh, British forces were uh, being drilled. And so during the night, or during the nighttime, he conducted studies on how an assortment of military tactics could develop for um, American um, fighting. In other words, for when, um, for when the time came to uh, fight the enemy. So there you have it, folks. He, you know, he did, William Heath just didn't um, become a brigadier general or general brigadier overnight. He obviously found uh, tools and resources along with connections to understand what it meant to uh, not only defend your homeland, but to help the people that is the people of a greater community, a greater, um, of a greater region, be able to go head to toe with the mightiest empire in the world. Now, was William Heath the founder to the Massachusetts Committee of Safety? Yes. Besides Heath himself, Dr. Joseph Warren was the other founder. So there's the answer, folks. They both knew each other, and they were, and they both had a lot of mutual respect for one another. Now, on April 19th of 1775, both men convene with one another and they meet with other present members um, who are a part of the um, Massachusetts Committee of Safety. Even Paul Revere himself was a member of the Committee of Safety, but we're not 100% sure if he was really at this meeting. I can tell you one man who um, who was there. Uh, he's a native of Marblehead, which is a uh, which is north of Boston, and at this time it is a very prominent fishing community. His name's Elbridge Jerry. You've heard me mention about his name on um, from other podcast series, but Elbridge Jerry was an ardent patriot himself too, and he was present at this meeting. Now, uh, we're going to have to wrap it up here soon because we've got a uh, time, uh, time constraint to be thinking about. But from uh, Concord Bridge to Lexington Green, New England militia went up against British forces in, in large formations roughly eight times. And this was all during the morning into the early afternoon. Six out of the eight... Um, Instances led to fighting. Two of these instances saw British infantry break at Concord Bridge and west of Lexington Green. Before day's end, the militia would, would encounter a different situation where the British infantry forces grew to 2,000 men, including a greater supply of of war art of um, artillery supplies, all of this was attributed to um, the leadership of uh, Lord Hugh Percy. So when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the Circle of Fire, the Long Retreat, and we're going to understand how the Circle of Fire goes about when um, fighting reemerges. So. The day is still young, folks, and as I said earlier, you know, it's one thing to retreat, but retreats aren't always joyous. Retreats aren't simple, 
it's not okay. We're running. Let's uh, let's let's go back to Boston. Let's regroup and fight for another day. I think that's what we were told years ago, but that's not how it was, and that's what I will share with you all when I'm on the air again next. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again, like I do all the time. Thank you. All thanks to all of you, my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners, for um, supporting me. Uh, without you all, I don't know where I would be today, but you guys are um, amazing. Keep up the good work by listening, and keep up the good work by spreading uh, my podcasts to, to those whom are interested in history and want to know more about the subjects I podcast on. Come to tell them to come to Anchor because it's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care for now and stay safe.